Hello, and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I'm your host, Justin, and today we're going to be talking about the Inflation Reduction Act and other news. How can there be other news, Justin? What does the IRA mean for listeners who are owners, residents, or investors? What about future owner, residents, and investors? Let's look into that and other news on Poplar Propcast News Night. Bum, ba-dum, ba-bum. This is the news music. Okay, let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act first. And walk out with me, if you will. Let's talk about what it's called. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. That's a very markety kind of name, in, in large part because a lot of the pieces in it aren't necessarily geared directly at inflation. There's pieces that will affect inflation, and there's pieces that may not affect inflation. There's a Penn Wharton budget model, and they use this model that they've developed to kind of look at it, and it calculates slight increase of inflation or slight decrease of inflation. It thinks it will be incidental, maybe a tenth of a percentage point up or down. Now, there's another group called the Committee for the Responsible Federal Budget. They say the short-term effect is negligible, but long-term effect is deflationary. So they're saying that it will actually do what it's purporting to say. But the act doesn't act in a vacuum. And there are a lot of pressures currently on inflationary trends in various directions. Some of the biggest ones are the war in Ukraine and the undersupply of housing. These are all affecting and being affected by supply line crises that have been compounded by COVID. Now, that in turn is a derivation of just-in-time model, which means that the thing should arrive at the store to be sold right before it is sold in the store. Uh, Walmart was one of the biggest proponents of this where they turn their space in kind of a warehouse and they have really complicated shipping lines, but it maintained and it worked really well. Where it fell apart was when we got hit by the pandemic and things kind of tightened up. That shakes that whole just-in-time model, makes it a little more difficult to keep things on the shelves, to keep things where they need to be. So because you have all of these things acting on inflation, there are a lot of bumps in this that could shift and change how much of an effect it has on inflation or whether it even turns deflationary. So to just call it the Inflation Reduction Act is very much a tactic to say we passed an inflation countering measure. While at the same time, what's happening is it's got a lot of stuff in it that will be good for the environment. It'll be good for stabilizing certain portions of the economy, for tackling high drug prices. There's there's stuff in there that's fighting some of the pricing components that come from not just supply line issues, but things like excessive profit taking, excessive reliance on fossil fuels, a couple of pieces in there that just kind of make it so that we have a more diversified base. And if something crumples in the supply side, we have other things to shift to. So there's some stuff that makes sense for that that does go towards sub-causes of inflation. But while we're looking at inflation and talking about it, I want to call out a couple of things on this. And that's how we look at and we measure inflation right now. It's kind of what's this average bag of goods cost and what's it going to cost next and how much is that price changing? Is it changing too fast? If it changes too fast, it can be pretty dangerous. If you look back historically, though, in any given 10-year period for, I don't know, let's say let's go back to 2002 to 2012, right? So we can look at the last 20 years. So 2002 to 2012, 
something that cost a dollar in 2002 would cost a dollar 28 in 2012 it's about a 27 and a half percent rate of inflation over that decade now if you switch that and you look at the range from 2012 to 2022 something that cost a dollar in 2012 would cost about a dollar 29 in 2002 we're at about 29 percent so over a long enough timeline there is a normalization in this not to say that the rest of this year might not totally shake that out and and make it rougher but if you look at historical inflation rates that go from month to month you've got crazy period this time right so like the 19 1919 1920s they're not just double digits but they're clipping into the 20 percent month over month inflation rates if you look at the 40s they're 18 percent in some periods of time and probably the most recent aggressive inflationary period was the early early 80s when you have 10%, 14% month over month inflation for a couple of years. Now, since 1982, we haven't had a month click over into the double digits. Matter of fact, we've had some years where we've had deflationary pressures kind of balance against inflationary pressures. And now in this year, the month that we got closest to cracking 10% was in June of 2022. That's probably our highest month over month for quite some time. Um, but all that to say, if we can stabilize it, we have to think over the longer term. So when you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the stuff that it's doing, it's very much trying to take a look at the long-term and macroevolutionary trends and processes. Okay, so that said, I know that's a little wonky, right? And that gets pretty funky, especially because we don't have... 100% guarantee that any of the stuff we do will have a profound effect because we have a massively integrated global economy. So things that happen in China have a profound effect on us. Shipping lanes have a profound effect on us. Oil prices have a profound effect on us. And those are not things we have as much direct control over. And so when we try and diversify and move those around, that's good. That's helpful to kind of go, cool, now we're not just beholden to boats we have boats or planes or our own ways to ship things or we make more things domestically as you change how many avenues you have on the supply side a supply side crisis becomes more avoidable which helps with inflation that's all a really long way to say what we're doing right now and what we're doing as armchair quarterbacks is kind of looking at it and going okay well how are unemployment level is going to be, how our price is going to change, our workers going to demand higher wages, how are the unions going to land. And as we play with each of those little things, it's like playing a game of Plinko from across the room with Frisbees. We don't necessarily know how those will long-term shape shake out when you have all the other things to consider. That's not to say we shouldn't try. It's just that we might not be the best suited. So if we're in that situation and we're playing Plinko from across the room with Frisbees, let's get Frisbee badasses. Let's get Frolf experts, ultimate Frisbee champs, anyone from the Ocho that throws Frisbees to their puppies. So that's what we're going to try and do today is talk about a couple of things that are really complicated inside of this Inflation Reduction Act, how it plays into the possibility of a recession, how people are colloquially talking about a recession, what a recession actually is, and what in the Inflation Reduction Act has really good news for homeowners, REITs, and there's some, uh, there's definitely primary residence benefits. Um, 
downstream though there's some stuff where as an owner or an investor it's a lot or as an owner investor it's a lot harder to see how this helps us so let's dive in and talk about how this kind of plays together so in the inflation reduction act probably one of the most one of the largest investment segments is in uh, renewable energy and energy efficiency on the renewable energy side you have tax credits for solar for example home solar is going to increase from 23 to 30 percent which is a good uh, shift like that's going to eat a lot more of the cost of solar where that's difficult though as an owner an investor who has a property to rent is it can be really hard to recoup that cost if you have a house that you're renting and you put solar panels on it that cost savings goes to the resident and not the owner well I will just charge more and have it be inclusive of energy fair and that's a good way to try and do it but if you do that and you price your home another $200 a month or $300 a month in somewhere like Vegas to capture that shift you've priced yourself past where people are searching so if you were previously renting a home that's a four bedroom two bath in a nice part of Vegas for uh, say 2300 and now you've got to add 300 to it and you're at 2600 you're not showing up in the searches the other way you can do it is to have the rent be 2300 with an addendum in the description that says this house has solar panels and so there will be a energy fee of 250 300 a month that could work too and that'll keep you inside of the search results but then you get into the possible danger in places like North Carolina, where for a while there was a law that you could not be a reseller of energy. And so if you're grabbing that fee and calling it an energy costs, then you might be counted as a reseller of energy. So if you're looking at doing something like that and trying to figure out how to get those solar panels on the property, you got to look at a couple of things. The final rules haven't come out. So I'm not sure how it applies to non-owner occupied residences. If you do it before you move out and before you put it up for rent, you're in a much better spot. So take a look at that, see if you can find some savings there. The other things they have in there for owners is stuff that will actually add value to the home and kind of make it more renter friendly. And the reason I say renter friendly is because there's a lot of wear and tear on rental properties that's uh, harder to capture and understand but the things that they have in there for appliances heat pumps dual pane windows energy efficient doors all of those things you can use and leverage to bring your house further towards uh, resiliency towards tenancy um, tenants have various relationships with how they use ac and heat depending on what they're paying for but they're some of the units that get the least attention for maintenance and need some of the most so if you're upgrading to a newer more modern appliance and a newer more modern hvac unit that say uses a heat pump those can be a lot more reliable over the long term than the one that you have in your house currently if it's five or ten years old you can upgrade and get it much longer life out of it. So that could be a benefit too. So take a look at that, see if you can find a way to turn that to your advantage. The other side of it that's kind of interesting is there's 
a benefit that only lands for REITs, a real estate investment trust. And that's a weird kind of way to get solar into certain properties and put it in a different portion of your bucket. Now, this is, I am so sorry this one's wonky today, but stay with me because it's interesting. So there's a movement inside of the Inflation Reduction Act that has an investment tax credit for solar. And there's a very subtle change in there that in the past, the amount of income a real estate investment trust can generate from sources other than real estate is limited. And the amount of assets a REIT can own that's not real estate is limited. And then there's an amount that's eligible for the ITC, the investment tax credit, is limited. All those things kind of pull REITs back from really investing in some strange stuff. Normally, you can have a taxable REIT subsidiary that holds up to 20% of its value of a REIT's total asset can be a taxable REIT subsidiary. And so they normally package the solar and put it in the TRS. But this IRA, the Investment Reduction Act, includes a provision that allows certain taxpayers, including REITs, to elect to transfer the ITC to an unrelated taxpayer in exchange for cash. That provision specifies the amount received by the seller, not includable in gross income. There's a bunch of stuff there. So talk to your tax guys, talk to your business guys. But it looks like it's possible in the Investment Reduction Act for a real estate investment trust to own a solar facility other than through a TRS and benefit from the investment tax credit by selling it to a third party. This is an interesting space for somewhere like Vegas. Um, for Vegas, you have these giant casinos. Caesars is going to be a really good example because they have one of the most complicated corporate structures. They spun off all their properties into a real estate investment trust. Then they have a service arm that provides services to the operation, operating corp corporation. And they have this kind of this web where they pulled um, accounting and analytics and all kinds of services into one pod that sells those services back to other pods. Then they have the real estate investment trust, which manages the properties. So you have all of that kind of mixed together, but they have these in place. So is it possible for somewhere like Caesars to solar the top of all their casinos or maybe build a solar facility out in the desert that they pump the energy back into and then pull that investment tax credit and get a benefit from it? I don't know. I think it'd be very interesting to look into. I know that the casinos have been trying to pull out of the NV Energy system and use them as supply lines only and then have their own power provisions. So this might be a further way that they try and play with that, which would be very interesting for pushing over to solar and kind of freeing up some of that power line. Um, now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the other part of this that the Inflation Reduction Act and kind of the whole economy is holding its breath and trying to figure out. And that's the recession side of this. So. Recession and the monetary policy are the two parts that are kind of governing and pushing against each other in tension. Uh, recession is a consistent downturn in economic activity. There's a group called the National Economic Review Board, and they're the ones that actually declare a recession. And they don't declare a recession because there's been two quarters of sustained downturn in GDP. That's not how it works. The reason it doesn't work like that is because there's these giant, complicated interplays between labor, between prices, 
that all influence GDP and roll up. And so when they're looking at economic activity, GDP is one portion of it. So yeah, if you look at the colloquial definition, we've had two quarters of downturn in GDP, but the NERB has not yet declared a recession. And a big reason they haven't is because the employment rates are still great. There's still a ton of activity in the market. There's still a ton of positive sentiment in certain sectors of the economy. But at the same time, you have other segments of the economy that are looking at it and going, hey, I'm NVIDIA. We don't look so hot. We're going to be moving more into data and kind of the gaming sector and holding that. Well, they've been in that for a long time, but a big crush on their stock is the crash in Bitcoin and the crash in Ethereum, the crash in crypto. And that's affecting them because their cards are bought by those people and used for that. And so they look at it and they go, oh, we're, we're having a little bit rough. We're going to revise our projections for our income down because we're not going to sell to the crypto pros. The other one that does this recently was the home builders. And everybody got kind of a lot of news articles saying home builder sentiment turns sour. Home builders are saying we're in a recession. And these are news articles I'm quoting. I'm not saying that we are. I'm saying that that was the, the sentiment. But when you talk about that sentiment, what they're really talking about is surveying home builders and saying, how do you feel about these portions of the market? How do you feel about building the supply line um, touring capability? And something to remember in this is that the builders that are building new homes are still struggling with supply line and labor difficulties. And because they're struggling with supply line and labor difficulties, that means that a property that they used to be able to build in two to three months from provision dirt to a roof uh, takes quite a bit longer. It can take upwards of five months, six, seven, eight months. And that expansion in wait time, that expansion in costs for labor, and that expansion in cost for supplies means that a home that they used to be able to build and sell as a brand new home for $350,000 may now cost $400,000. And so their profits are getting eaten into. They may only raise the price of the house 25 grand, but then they're still eating 25 grand out of their profits. And so they're trying to figure out how to get back to the profitability that they've been seeing. And that's gonna be very difficult. The other thing to keep in mind about home buyer sentiment is it's still over 50 and anything above 50 is considered a positive. The biggest thing was that everybody was like up in arms about was the big drop from month over month. It was, it was something like a 13 point drop and that 13 point drop is a huge drop, but it puts it at 50. There was this exuberance coming into the pandemic where from 2019 to 2020, after a little dip, they'd been climbing, climbing, climbing and stayed above 60 for the end of 2019. When the pandemic hit, it crushed it. So all of a sudden home buying sentiment was under 30. So it went from being over 70 to under 30. That's a pretty drastic drop, but it rebounded really fast. So the next couple of months after that, it bumped right back up to 70. Then it jumped over 80 and it was nearly hitting 90. And then as we get into 2021 and 2022, you stay up there in the 70s and 80s, and now we just came down to the 50s. So this retraction and this pullback in sentiment is still one of the highest it's been for almost the last 10 years. 
it's been higher obviously but it's it's being over 50 from 2006 to 2013 2014 we were under 50 we had home builder sentiment as low as 10 percent in 2008 so the home builder sentiment is just kind of an attitude from the home builders on how these macroeconomic forces of supply chain and cost are affecting them so they have all those costs, right? Raw land, shaping the land, materials, labor, costs and money. And then when they finish a home, the longer it takes them to sell it, the more it's costing them because they've got to run the power, they've got to run the AC, they have to have it ready to occupy so that it can be shown. They also have to maintain an office and a staff to show the properties. And that costs money. And so all those kind of stack up to be the things that are affecting the builder sentiment. Now, when you stack that into a home and talk about the cost of a home, the home cost itself is one of the pieces in buying a home. When you're talking about pricing a home and rates, so everybody's talking about the Fed rate, right? So it's up and now mortgage rates are at 5%. Mortgage rates were at 2%. And that big change affects how much a house people can afford. But that's not all of it, right? So the thing we just talked about with the home builders, that affects it too. And the rate affects it, the cost to insure a property if it's in a floodplain or if it's in a tornado path changes. Cost to maintain a property, how big of an acreage it has, how much grass or dirt or land to maintain. Cost of utilities in that area. The property taxes, which vary greatly from state to state. And those all stack up and they add to this housing price, right? And so when home builder sentiment turns negative, and you hear all these stories about people trying to find a home and it's all too expensive and the sellers are still keeping it at the high price. Yeah, but we're also seeing a correction and a return to normality after ridiculous growth for two years. So there is a downturn, but it's a short-term downturn and should be seen, in my opinion, as more of a correction than a full-blown smash. I mean, if every, if the price of every home in the United States decreased by 10% tomorrow, that's not crippling. We grew almost 30% over two years. That's crazy. That's not sustainable and not traditionally doable. Um, we haven't talked about it yet, but we'll talk on the podcast about supply chains for housing itself for apartments, single family rentals, builds and buys, and how that's shifting. But today our focus has been on the Inflation Reduction Act and the possibility of recession. The recession hasn't been called. The Inflation Reduction Act has a lot of tools in it to help kind of push that away. As we look at what's gonna happen next, it's not really predictable safely for the average person, in large part because of these giant global events that are happening. Supply lines are still all messed up. And then we've got the war in Ukraine and the effect of that on oil prices. These things don't work in a vacuum. They're not one-offs. They're this big, complicated spider web network. And at the center is homeowners and renters. People just kind of living their lives. But living their lives in a way that they want to have the, st the shelves fully stocked at the local grocery store. They want gas to be cheap and plentiful. They want to have money to go on vacations and buy their kids Christmas presents. So you stack all this stuff up and keep looking at it at different angles. 
and we don't really know what comes next. But I'm like the home builders. I'm above 50. I'm thinking it's all going to be pretty okay. My dad used to talk about this stuff. He used to talk about the recessions he'd seen. He'd talk about the climate that his parents went through in the depression in world war one what happened in world war ii like all this this stuff just happens in these cycles and it can get pretty bad and it can get pretty good and i think for what we've been through in the last couple of years we're doing pretty good thanks for listening everybody this has been poplar propcast talking about really deep wonky issues in kind of a news night format So we appreciate you taking the time, spending it with us, and we will talk to you next week. Justin out. Justin out.